Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We are in our uh, second episode in Christian nationalism. And we're going to continue on our conversation that we had last time as we define Christian nationalism and really start looking at the impacts that this has on the church. So let's get into it. So Rob, you've already kind of hinted at this, but let's be crystal clear on something. What would you say are some of the fundamental differences between the kingdom of God and worldly kingdoms? Yeah. So, and by the way, we're doing a study uh, on the kingdom of God in my Zoom Bible studies. If you're, if you're listening to this here, you can uh, email me and let me know if you want to get that information there. But we're going to load those studies on this podcast at the, uh, probably in December of 2021. I'm trying to make sure I know what year it is. So the kingdom of God, what's interesting about it, by the way, is it's the most common topic of Jesus in the gospels, especially Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet most Christians have little understanding of it. And so what's fundamentally important to understand when we talk about Christian nationalism is the fact that the gospel is that Jesus is the Lord. And when he says he's the Lord, he means I'm the king. We can't deny the fact, and we, we so often underemphasize this, he was crucified by Rome for treason. The sign above his head said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The gospel writers are clearly accenting this point that Jesus's proclamation was he is the king. And as we said earlier, then our allegiance as Christians is to him as king. And in fact, the gospels even go on to say that we are going to be kings and queens mm -hmm. under his authority. So we are the kings and, and ambassadors, as Paul might say of that kingdom, of Christ's kingdom. Now, we live in the nations at the same time. And so, sure, I'll pay taxes to the nations, and we'll talk about being patriotic. I'll be patriotic to my nation and, and love the nation I'm in. No problem with all that. But my loyalty is always to Christ as the king. And then if we get into the ethics of the kingdom, we would notice that the ethics of the Christian kingdom, as I mentioned already, are fundamentally opposed to the way the kingdoms of the world work. The ethics of the kingdom of God is the fact that we love one another and we lay down our lives for the sake of the other. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the way the ethic of the kingdom works. But nations just can't operate that way. If you imagine, you know, the president of the United States going to South North Korea and going, you know, hey, I love you so much. Whatever you want, you know, let me know. I just want to submit to you and love you. It's like he's going to take advantage of that. He's going to exploit that. And I'm not saying that Christians are going to be exploit, you know, allow others to exploit us necessarily either. The nations of the world can't operate the way the, the kingdom ethics operate. What, what, what do you think on that? Well, I, I actually want to rewind it to the first thing you said, because okay. I think this is something that's overlooked. And especially in Christian subcircles, we have these terminology that we just, we use and we, we assume we know the meaning. When you say Jesus is Lord, yeah, we hear that in, in modern America as a 100% religious term, mm -hmm. especially since like the word Lord is used for God and it's more of a, a deity worship yeah. type thing. How is this term you, like understood in a first century context uh, in Palestine, in the Roman world, in the early church? What do they hear when they hear the phrase Jesus is Lord, when, when Paul proclaims this in Romans 10, for instance? Yeah. In the Roman world, it is absolutely treasonous. It's blasphemous because Caesar is Lord. In fact, the word gospel, which means the good news, mm -hmm. was actually used. I mean, the one main source that we have of its being used before the New Testament time, it was used of Caesar Augustus to announce the, the birth of Caesar Augustus. 
So when Mark 1 says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, that's like flat in the face of Roman imperial uh, religious political ideology that says, no, Caesar is the son of God. Because he's because literally, by the way, Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar, who was deified. Mm -hmm. And so and not only was he the son of God, he was the savior of the world. And so the Christian gospel so often it is we, we talk about it too much as though it's like, OK, what Jesus was saying was antithetical to the Judaism. Mm -hmm. And actually what he was saying actually was far more antithetical to Rome and Roman and Roman imperialism. Uh, that was the big problem. And because the religious leaders in Judaism, the Herodians and the Sadducees, we don't, know, we don't know a lot about Herodians, but the Sadducees, the chief priests, they were actually working for Rome. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's, why, that's where they got their power. You know, we know of King Herod was, was kind of Jewish, is Idumean, but he was actually put in power by Rome saying, hey, you control this area. And then they put local people up in Syria and say, you control this area. And so what the Romans did is like, they empowered the upper class and the wealthy, and they made them upper class and wealthy because they empowered them to govern this area of the Roman Empire. So it wasn't as much Jesus against Judaism, because the Judaism that he's critiquing is the Judaism that actually had conspired with the Roman imperialistic empire. And so it's Jesus's empire versus their empire. And that's what he's undermining. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's is fundamentally a, a dagger in the back of Caesar, because what belongs to God, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Right. I, I don't think, I don't think you could say a dagger in the back of Caesar. Yeah. I probably could. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I didn't restate that. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Though, right. Uh, yeah. no, it's the, the point of it though is right. Is it, this is a fundamental undermining of Roman imperialism. That's what Jesus was doing. So I think we look at it too much as though it's Jesus against the Judaism and the Pharisees were this way. No, I think he's actually undermining Roman imperialism and you guys that have gone into cahoots with him, and then the Pharisees who didn't go into cahoots with him. Well, you guys are no better either because you're not. You're doing the same things. You're yeah, and there is no separation of church and state in no. the ancient world, and so uh, that's a, a modern a, American thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so the a theological claim is a political claim, and vice versa. Those things yes. are. This is a, a pot of spaghetti. You can't separate the uh, the noodles in this one. Yeah, let me add one more thing to this. There were actually a large number of prophets and even messianic pretenders mm -hmm. at the time of Jesus, before the time of Jesus, and even after the time of Jesus. Bar Kokhba is a famous one, a hundred years after Jesus, but. There were also a number in the 60s, and there were also a number before Jesus, 4 BC, the year Jesus was born. And some of these messianic pretenders, they were not crucified. They were prophets. Uh, one of them actually was, his name actually was Jesus or Yeshua. And the, the Romans just said, they, they beat him and then they let him go because like all he was doing was making religious claims. And his religious claims didn't have the political undermining or uh, undertone that Jesus's political religious claims did. Jesus was crucified, which tells you he wasn't just making religious claims, because if he was, Rome would never have crucified him. Rome would have just said, you're mm -hmm. crazy, you're, we're going to beat you, and we don't really care what you Jewish people do, uh, as long as you uh, abide by Rome. So the fact that he was crucified is key evidence that Rome considered him a political threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing, even as we're you know talking about the gospel, right? This is a term that is is not coined by the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Exactly this is a right. this is a Greco-Roman term. It's a military term. It's a term that's going to be used of military victories for those leaders. It's going to be used of Caesars that are born because we know that they're eventually going to become part of the pantheon. And it, that's, you know, this pagan 
origin of this term that really was hijacked by Christianity to talk about one thing. And that's the true kingdom of, you know, the true kingdom that exists. And so this word gospel or good news, which everyone knows that those are interchangeable. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is literally where we get the word evangelical. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Right. Ironic. It is because the word evangelical has become a voter block. I don't remember this being a thing 20 years ago where it talked about the evangelicals. Uh, Well, it was becoming a thing, but not, not in the negative way as much, as much as as it has become now. Well, no, and you definitely have, you know, in the the moral majority, Pat Robertson, Mm -hmm. Jerry Falwell, these guys pushing in the late seventies to to create this movement. Yeah. And then it really becomes, it starts in the late seventies, but it really becomes a thing in the eighties with Reagan and and it comes to this climax. And now all of a sudden we we've developed this thing where evangelicals are a voter block. And it usually is something like, and this is where uh, Whitehead and Perry do a great job in, in their book, parsing this out, but it's, it's usually a group of white conservative who, who hold to a certain way of thinking and talking about Jesus, but now it's been merged with their politics. And so it's not just what you believe theologically, it's also now how you vote politically. And it's used way more to describe voters than it is to describe the actual thing that it's supposed to mean, which is you know, the good news about Jesus, the King, the Lord, uh, you know, the, the one who could stand over all the world and say all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And that's something where I, I think that is far more offensive that we've allowed this term to be used in a political way to the point where you have people who say, I don't want to be associated with the good news. I don't want to be associated right. with evangelicals as saying, I don't want to be associated with the good news of Jesus. And that is something that should grieve the church. Uh, and, and unfortunately, this is a direct byproduct of Christian nationalism. Yeah. And that brings up another one of the issues I think that I really want to make sure we touched on. And that was the impact on our Christian witness. Mm-hmm when we merge Christianity with any state, there's always a danger and it's a danger. And I remember having a conversation with a, an Orthodox priest a number of years ago and, and they laud Constantine and he was mm-hmm. praising Constantine. And, and I said, I'm not sure that what he did was a good thing. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, what do you mean? You know, it gave us freedoms and all the bishops and priests were all uh, persecuted and, and wounded and everything else. And now all of a sudden we have, we have all these, and we have money, we have power and we have the church, we have buildings and basilicas. And, and I said, yeah, but I think you also see the decline of the church mm-hmm. beginning once Constantine Christianizes the empire. So I remember talking in 2011 with a, a priest from Syria, and he was mentioning the fact that if the wave of uprisings, if it ever struck Syria, there was going to be a big problem for the church there. And I said, well, how come? He says, because the Christians in Syria went into cahoots with the leader of Syria. What's his name? Bashar al-Assad. And because Bashar al-Assad protected them and gave them freedoms and privileges, et cetera, he said, once the coup is to overtake Bashar al-Assad as this evil dictator, then they're going to take out anybody else that worked alongside with them, anybody that worked with them. And that was the Christians. I thought, oh my goodness, this is not good. So the fact that the church has identified itself with the state can become dangerous for the sake of our Christian witness. And then go back to the conversation that we had mentioned earlier then, and that you were alluding to, and that is how many people have become disillusioned by what they call evangelicalism, and it's being wed to a particular political party. And when they end up doing, and what nationalism does, is it, is it can't critique that. And the idea of it, look, no matter what political party you have, they're going to do wrong things. That, that's just the nature, of, the nature of the beast. And so to not be able to critique it is to not be Christian. 
because Christians, by, the, by definition, we, we critique in, in ourselves, recognizing the fact that repentance is the beginning, beginning of the church and that, that we all make mistakes and we need to, to own up to that. And so I think if anything, what I would want to get across is the fact that how greatly this has impacted our witness in the world. Uh, not just in America, though, as well, but also then you go to foreign countries and when foreign countries see, oh, well, you Christians support the United States and the United States doing this and we don't like it, then it also gives us a bad witness in, in those countries also. Uh, let's remind ourselves in, in our audience, we're not bashing America. No. Uh, and, and there's a sense of we're called to be patriotic in, sure. of any nation, whatever, wherever your, uh, your birth certificate lies, wherever your passport lies. You should praise God that that is where he put you. Nationalism is when one has a, an improper view of their country where they think it's better than everyone, not just like pride, but the, the bad kind of pride. Yeah. Uh, and it's and, only for us. It's only for people like us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very exclusive. It's, it's, it's the, the, the country club view in a sense. And then they leave once, golf out of it. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I wasn't going to go there, but okay. Once the Christian starts blending theological beliefs with that nationalistic mm. belief, that's when you have this thing called Christian nationalism. Right. And to summarize some of the things that we look for, or that might be indicative of Christian nationalism. Uh, well, it would be the idea that this is a country for Christians, made by Christians, for Christians, and that God has divinely sanctioned such. And the, the spread of Christianity throughout the, throughout the, the West founding of, of, of America was specifically ordained by God and that this is a country for Christians and by Christians. Yeah. You may be a second class citizen if you're not a Christian. Yeah. Right. You can only and, be a true American if you, if you are a Christian. Right. Right. And yeah. there's all kinds of problems with that. Right. As we discussed already, namely of course, that that's not how we love our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And the fact that as we discussed already, that you can't have Christians, uh, a Christian, such thing as Christian nation because Christians have only one King and it's Jesus and Christians live in all countries. I mean, if anything, England is technically more of a Christian nation than America because they actually have a state church. Yeah. That's so if you want to make that an argument. interesting conversation, we should bring Scott McKnight back on <laughs> yeah, that yeah, conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and there's, there's, there's symbols and things, and I know we'll talk about this more with, with David in a, in a few weeks, but symbols are very important in life. And, and there's many things that symbolize Christianity that we've included in the public square, whether it could be the 10 commandments, whether it could be, uh, you know, in a courthouse, whether it's, um, uh, you know, things like the utilization of Bible verses by political speakers, whether on the left, on the right, either one of them says it, mm -hmm. even, even the phrase, God bless America, or even the song that you would play it, you know, in, in at a baseball game. Now it's ever since nine 11. Now we have to sing, you know, we can't just do uh, take me out to the ball game. It's, we have to sing God bless America, which is always, what does that mean? Is that, is that a request? Is that a demand? Is that a statement of fact? Like, what does that even mean? What are we, what are we stating, stating mm -hmm. when we make, when we say that, but there's also probably the biggest symbol that any country has ever had, you know, going back to the standards that the Romans uh, would march around with are flags. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, you had to go there, didn't you? I had to go there. Yeah. Because uh, this is the thing, especially in 20th century America, post-World War II America, the flag holds a different you know, view in society, especially in a, like a post-2015 America. <laughs> we're all up in arms of flags. You know, we see bumper stickers, you know, we, we kneel for the cross and stand for the flag, right? We, we you know, it's even a thing there, but what do we do with flags in the church? Do flags belong in the church? Yeah. So let me tell you a story before I answer the question. Cause I got myself in trouble for this. I, I was new to the pastoral to 
being a lead pastor. Mm-hmm. And I was at a theological conference about four months after I'd gotten the job. And I was presenting a paper on nationalism in the book of Revelation. And when I was done, one of the questions came up and said, well, Rob, you know, based on what you said, and it was, I liked your paper, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what would you do about having a flag in your church? I'm like, oh, it's wrong. There's no, there's no place for a flag in the church, and we'll discuss why. And so my good buddy was with me, and we went back to the conference was in San Diego. So we went back to Bakersfield over the weekend. So, and I said, Hey, you're in town. You're going to preach for me this weekend. So no problem. So we go Bakersfield on Sunday and we walk into the church on Sunday morning, getting ready to get started. And he looks up and goes, Rob, there's a flag right there. I'm like, Oh no, you're kidding me. No. And I, I had been there for four months. and I had never noticed it. So that's not a good thing. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I just presented this paper on why I think this is wrong. I just gotten asked this in a conversation and let's discuss the theological reasons why I don't, I don't agree with it. So I kind of made a rash decision. I took it out. I'm like, okay, this, I don't, somebody put this here. I don't know. I don't know when this came in because it hasn't been there the whole time. Well, I found out it has been there the whole time. So I went to session and said, Hey, here's the deal. It's what I did. I'm sorry. I did this. I shouldn't have done this without asking you, but, uh, but here's why I believe it's wrong. And we had a long discussion of it. And I think for the, they were silent. And for the most part, they were like, uh, this is going to be a problem, but they were also thinking, yeah, okay. I think I agree with you. Just well, a quick question it, it, from their mindset. Had they even ever pondered the possibility that there could be a conflict there? I don't think they did. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't it think was they probably just assumed that this is what you yeah. do. You have a, a yeah, flag. Yeah, no church. problem at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think by the way, the history of America is that flags were not in Christian churches until the 1950s mm-hmm. is what the first time that you began seeing flags in churches. I could be wrong on that, but I think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think it's a post-World War II yeah. phenomena there. So uh, nonetheless, I took it out. I had the conversation Well, we started getting letters and I had people, uh, I think they actually did it the right way. They came to me and said, Rob, I don't like this. And they wrote letters and they, and they came to my office and said, I don't, uh, here's, what, here's why I think it should be there. And they were very adamant about it. Well, the reality was, obviously I did it the wrong way. I went about the wrong way and I had to put it back. And I began to realize, you know, once you get symbols like this in churches, mm-hmm. good luck getting them out. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked for a second ago about, and we'll get back to the question that you just asked in a minute about God bless America to ball games. Well, it's, you're never going to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Once you start doing it, you're not going to have one team go, you know, we're not going to do that anymore. Go, oh, what? That's a nationalistic song at a sports game. Mm-hmm. So you, you talk about blending, you know, religion and politics together. Well, you bl- you're blending sports and politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard so many people saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't, this kneeling at the flag and not kneeling at the flag stuff is stupid. You shouldn't be putting, you know, your politics in the sports. Like, God bless America is putting your politics in the sports. Yeah. You're putting yep. your nationalistic symbols and emblems and having the military veterans stand up. And that's fine if you want to do that. I'm just saying that's a militaristic or nationalistic symbol at a sporting event. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have the flyover, of course, at, mm-hmm. at Super Bowls, and we have the military who marches out the flags. Those are just not, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying be aware of these nationalistic things creeping into your system. And once they come in, you're never going to get them out. Mm-hmm. Anyways, as far as the theology goes. I would say that it's blasphemous. And I think that's a strong statement. And let me, before you turn this up, podcast off, let, let me explain why. First off, the sanctuary is the place where God's people gather together. And I recognize the fact that wherever God's people gather together, that is by definition a church. It doesn't have to be in a building. But the point of that is, is that if a building is dedicated to a church, now, again, it's different if, you're, if your church meets in a specific hall or mm-hmm. whatever a high might school be. or something yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and there's and there's a flag there that's fine you're bringing the church into that building mm-hmm. but if this building is a church 
then it's where God's people gather together. And by its very nature, it's where Christ actually is present mm -hmm. in the, through the spirit with his people. Uh, it's the place of God's presence. And if you think about this from an Old Testament context, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no graven images in my presence or no idols in my presence. The presence of God in the Old Testament context was the Jewish temple. Well, the presence of God today is in us, the church. And when we gather together for corporate worship, it's Christ that we are worshiping. And that's he that's the center of it all. And to have this nationalistic symbol in there, I think is blasphemous because you're bringing in symbols of the nation into the church. And that, I think that's the biggest problem. And I, I think we're, we're profaning it by bringing these symbols of the nation in, in a particular building. And again, I, I, if you worship in a, in a hall, that's fine. You're bringing the church to it. I, I think the ultimate point is that we have too low a view of the church, of what the church is, and what the gathering of God's people is, and what Christian worship is all about, and the idea of having no other gods in my presence. Yeah. And, and there's something I think you and I both have high ecclesiological views, and especially when the people of God are gathering, it should look different. It should represent the kingdom of God. I'm a believer that churches are to be viewed as embassies because they're made up of ambassadors and, yeah. and the embassy is a sovereign entity in a foreign hostile land. It might not be hostile because yeah. it's allowing you to, to reside there, but it is a foreign land Yeah, and, and you should look different. Yeah, exactly. So you know, when I was young, I used to be judgmental. <laughs> I still am probably, but I was very judgmental of Catholicism and Orthodoxy because they had these massive cathedrals that cost mm -hmm. billions and millions of dollars. And there's, there is a problem with that, I think a little bit. But as I began to understand a little bit about Orthodoxy and Catholicism, I began to realize, okay, what they actually believe that they're doing is that the church building where God's people gather together is actually supposed to be heaven on earth yeah. uh, and the new Jerusalem. And so it was, it was a symbol of holiness in the sense of this is what new creation looks like. And that's why it's so elaborate is because you're walking into this new garden presence of God. And so they have a very high view of worship and what that means. I thought, you know, I can actually respect that. That's awesome. And so I think what we do when we say, oh, we can have flags in our church or whatever is we're actually having too low a view uh, of what the church is and the gathered of the church and even what the building itself represents. Yeah, and, and actually I would encourage our listeners do some research and look at the theology of cathedrals. Yes. Because it's an amazing study. Even the fact that they're laid out like crosses, if you look at an aerial view. Yes, and exactly. it, it even like from my standpoint, I always thought it'd be weird. Why do they have gargoyles on the outside of these things? And it's like, oh, it's representing what life like is is like outside the church mm -hmm. where you have the, this evil in these things that exist outside the church, but it's preserved inside the church. And there's a great theology that, that was actually one of the most surprising things going through church history is studying that in, you know, medieval church history is the development of cathedrals and the theological significance of how they laid those out. It's not merely an aesthetic thing. There's a theological conviction behind it. And I think you're, you're dead on on that. Yeah. And there's also early Christian churches. If you go to remains in Greece and some of these old places where you find these early churches, which of course start to arise after the fourth century, right after mm -hmm, Constantine, mm -hmm. they always faced East. Yes, exactly. Because East is the way, the direction from which God comes, right? Mm -hmm, God's coming mm -hmm. from the East. And so they, they were theologically arranged just in the direction. So absolutely. I, I think we're having too low a view of the church when we do that. So what are some of your thoughts on the flag? Yeah. No, I, I think it's something that I, growing up Lutheran, I don't remember there being a flag in mm. the sanctuary. And, and I'd have to go back and, yeah. and check on this. I, I just, I, I don't know if I'm aware of it or not. I'm not sure if um, it was in my Baptist church either. Yeah. Well, and, and that's really when I started experiencing it is, is going to Baptist church later mm. on in life, uh, you know, teenage years and, and whatnot and not thinking anything of it because it, 
it's just there, right? You don't, you don't have a conviction of it because you assume it ought to be there. And for me, it was a combination of once I took, I don't want to say more seriously, because it makes it sound like people who think that they should be there don't have a serious conviction. Sure. But when I did started studying more ecclesiology, which is the theology of the church, theology of the church, and specifically looking at what is, what it, what does it mean to gather as the people of God? taking the really learning about the kingdom of God and what that, what that really entails. And, and, you know, the mixing of the kingdom of God with the, the gathering of the people of God, and then looking at the, the hostile nation, uh, the hostile aspect of the, the nations raging against God and, and saying, well, that's America. That's all these other nations. It's not just an anti-America thing. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think a, a flag of any country should be in a church. Because right. it's ultimately that is representing a pagan nation that that is against God by nature, and, and there's obviously some natures, some nations that are more against God than others. Right. Thank God I am I live in America and not in China because I don't have like we talked about in our intro, I don't have a fear of my door being broken down right now. However, that still is a reality of at the end of the, the day, this is not a Christian. That that flag does not represent Jesus, and so we need to take serious that. And then, actually, a huge thing for me is I spent a lot of time involved in a marching band and drum and bugle corps, a musician as an instructor and those sorts of things. And you have to learn about things like American flag code and how to what's the proper way to hold a flag or display a flag. And so, even something like what's called the position of honor always exists, mm-hmm. whether you, whether you're displaying a flag indoors or outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're looking at a stage. The American flag always has to be in the position of honor, which is which is on the left side of the stage if you're looking at it. By American law, right? It, it's it's not technically law. It's called flag code. Okay. So it's it's not something that is it's it's decriminalized in a sense. They're never going to oh. bust you for it. But this is the the code that is put out there from from what I understand. You know, this means that if you ever have a secondary flag, it can never be in the position of honor. It always has mm-hmm. to be in the secondary position. Which if you're looking at a stage, that's going to be on the right side. So. Typically, what you see in churches that do fly a flag, and I, I don't know if your uh, your old church uh, mm-hmm. had this, but you would normally have what's called a Christian flag, which is just mm-hmm. a, I believe it's a 20th century invention. It's not like there's a long yeah, history there. Is. But this flag, if you're looking at a church, is usually on the right side of your stage. Right. Well, what this is communicating, though, because these are symbols, so they communicate something. They they're just pieces of material. They don't have any intrinsic value, but they're communicating something. And what it's communicating is that the American nation sits in the position of honor. Whereas if this flag is representing the kingdom of God, then that sits in a secondary position. So what is that actually communicating? So when you look at outdoor on a flagpole, if you have multiple flags on one pole, no flag could be raised higher than the American flag. So you might have the American flag on top with a Christian flag second. What is that communicating? It's communicating the church submits to the state in a way. And and not, I'm not saying in a Romans 13 kind of way, it's, it's communicating something else. Right. Right. And well-meaning pastors and people who fly these things or place these things in their sanctuaries, they would never affirm that they would never affirm that the kingdom of God is, you know, submissive to the state in that regard in terms of one having, but this is what is being communicated when we have these flags out here. Yeah. And I've, I've heard a lot of pastors. They said, well, the flag just reminds me of the fact that I'm in, I'm in a particular nation Mm -hmm. and that I'm called to be a witness to all the nations. And that's all it reminds me of. And the answer is, well, maybe it means that to you, but we have to remember the fact that it doesn't mean that to everybody else that walks mm-hmm. in those doors. Mm-hmm. And that becomes another part of it as well, that we are one body from all areas and we come in and people might be coming into that church and maybe you're witnessing to somebody who's Muslim and you invited them to church. You finally got them to come to church with you. And then they see American flag there and they're offended by it. Maybe because they're from another country, right? Mm-hmm. So 
we have to respect the fact that, wait a minute, our witness to Christ is first and foremost. I think our worship of Christ is first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But our witness to Christ is also is, ne- is next. And if we do something to offend somebody who doesn't want to come back to our church because there's a pagan symbol in it, then, then get rid of it. And then, then we'll add to the fact of what you just said, that it's actually a disgrace to the American flag because we can't place it higher than the Christian flag, but mm-hmm. we have to. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have all those issues. So, I, And I know people disagree on this thing there. And obviously, I ended up pastoring for seven years with a flag mm-hmm. behind me. And uh, I, I was never comfortable with it. I didn't like it. I felt it was blasphemous personally, but I had to at the same time, respect the congregation and, and the community. And I think that's part of what the community does. We, we come together, we discuss these things, and it's not a dictatorship. So I can't dogmatically assert all things. I explained what I thought and what, why I believe what I believed and gave a longer discussion than what I did here. Yeah. Um, and, I, and even giving our folks something to think about, because as an American, you, this might be bugging you right now. You know, something might be stirring up. But think of it this way. You travel to China on vacation and you go to a church mm-hmm. and you walk in there and there's a Chinese flag and you're seeing a hammer and sickle, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you're trying to worship God with Chinese brothers and sisters and you see a Chinese flag and you're saying, wait, this is communist. This is not of God. You know, you're, yeah. you're going to have a response. You're now distracted and recognizing that a human institution and a governmental system is being merged with the church in a way where, you know, the kingdom of God is not communist. And yeah. this, you'd rightfully be offended by that. And this is going to affect well, you, especially if you did like North Korea, where you would, yeah, absolutely. because human rights and, and Christian mm-hmm. rights don't exist in that country, as mm-hmm. far as we know. And you walk into there and I'm not sure you actually would walk into a church, but if and they had a symbol there, you go, wait a minute, that's the state, that state's oppressive. That's everything that we're speaking against. It doesn't belong here. Exactly. It doesn't matter what country it is, whether one country is better than another. It's a secular symbol of a secular entity, and it doesn't belong in the house of God. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the same thing because the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem, it's not a capitalistic society. No. <laughs> you know, it, it's not a society that's dictated. Yeah, oh, right. you can't be on this podcast with exactly. me anymore. It, it's not, a, you know, the new Jerusalem is not a society that is yeah. governed by a declaration of independence because we, we don't have independence. We have a fidelity to God, yeah. you know, Jesus, who is Lord, you know, one seated on the throne with the, with the lamb at his side. And there's not even a need for a son because they're providing this, right, <laughs> you know, yeah, that exactly. way, like that's what the new Jerusalem is. It's, it's neither communistic or capitalistic. It's, it's yeah. something entirely different. And that's what the local or, you know, the church ought to be when they gather, it shouldn't represent the kingdoms of this world. Yeah. Let's just summarize this quickly here as we finish yeah. up and just make sure I, what I want to get across is the fact that the, the tagline for determined truth is challenging the church to be the church. And the church being the church means we have a good kingdom theology, that our king is Christ, and that we operate within the frame of that kingdom. And that as ambassadors for that kingdom, we live in all the kingdoms of the world, but we're to be witnesses to them. And of course, we can be patriots within those kingdoms, but we can't be nationalistic, prideful uh, there because it distorts what the kingdom of God is and what our loyalty is there. And then another problem with it, of course, is that it's affecting our witness and it's harming our witness because people look at it and go, hey, I don't like that kingdom or that nation, whatever one you're aspiring to. And therefore, and I associate it with Christianity because you're associating it with Christianity and it impacts our witness, whether it's a witness around the world or whether it's our witness to younger evangelicals who are disillusioned or whether it's our witness to more liberals who are not Christian at all. And they're just disillusioned because all evangelicals seem to be this. I think there's a, a number of issues that, and I think that's why this is so important. Absolutely. Well, hey, fun time to, to jump into this. If you've hung through the podcast so far and you're 
you're feeling something weird. It's like, man, I don't yeah. know. I don't, I don't know if I like Vinny and Rob right now. Yeah. Right. Um, Good. It, we would, we would encourage you to say, Hey, keep sticking with this. We encourage you to keep listening through this, listen through our uh, conversations with uh, David, listen to the other conversations yeah. we do in the series. And uh, please know that this isn't something we split over. It's something that we have, con- you know, a conviction and conscience. Right. If, if anything, hopefully you're hearing something that might be different from what you're used to and sit in it. It's okay. Sure. You know, Christianity isn't, uh, and our discipleship isn't microwavable. We don't have to pop it in the microwave and have it finished in a minute, all, you know, ready to go. Sometimes we need to stew in things and really resonate, you know, have introspection. And I think that's, this is a topic where we just need to sit in it for a while and evaluate where we're at. Good. Hey everyone. Hope you have a great week. Uh, come back next week in our next conversation and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.